Meteorologist Don Day joins us for the entire show as we talk about all things weather-related, like an update on La Nina and how it will play out through the spring and summer and its effects on our long-term weather. Plus, what's in store for the country when it comes to this season's storms, both inland and tropical. And we'll end with this topic. Is this the worst drought we've ever experienced? They basically said, well, based on the tree rings that they looked at in the desert southwest, the current period we're in right now is drier than any other period they saw in the tree rings all the way back to 800 AD. I think you'll be surprised at the data as we hear from our guest today, meteorologist Don Day, on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, hello, everyone, and we welcome you back here again. It's another edition of the Working Ranch Radio Show, and I'm your host, Justin Mills. We're glad to have you joining us here on our program. If you're joining us here on the radio, we thank you for tuning in, and we hope you stay with us through our program today. We, uh, we'll talk about it in just a little bit. Now, there's other ways to listen as well. Of course, pretty much any podcast provider out there, you can go and you can find our program. Today's episode is episode 73. Now, weather is our feature topic here today and meteorologist Don Day will be joining us for the entire show. Now if you're not a regular listener to the Working Ranch Radio show, meteorologist Don Day joins us in every ep- in every show at the very uh, end as we kind of get an update for the next couple of weeks of what our long-term weather is looking like. Today he's going to be joining us though as we spend the entire show talking about weather. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about La Nina and the update on that and again not to at, at some point in time we just kind of get tired of talking about La Nina but nevertheless we'll still have some weather this year that's going to be affected by La Nina and we're going to be talking about what that effects will look like for the rest of the spring summer fall and we'll even talk a little bit about what the winter of 2023 may look like for some of us across the country plus also the storm season what is in store uh, for us with that both tropical storms uh, and how that affects the southeastern part of the country and the eastern coast but also a a thunderstorm storms and and tornadic activity. Now, we've already seen some of that stuff going on in the Midwest and the South Central Plains, but we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then also, we're going to be talking with meteorologist Don Day about, is this the worst drought that we've ever experienced? Now, there has been some media attention drawn to that that says that this is the worst drought we've ever had. Now, he's going to shed some light on that topic. And, and kind of put it into perspective. And I think you'll be interested to find out what he has to say about that and the information that he has in regards to that. So that's going to be our feature topic here today. Of course, in just a little bit, we'll hear from uh, Captain Tim O'Byrne, publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine, for his uh, this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. But before we do that, I do want to thank our sponsors of the Working Ranch radio show. Uh, Bobcat is one of our sponsors. You know, that is one tough tractor. And if you go to their website at bobcat.com you can use the build and quote tool and then you can just design the machine that you want how, what fits for you what you need for horsepower what the different L, or different types of things you want to add to your machine you can put that all together and have a quote built right there on their website again it's bobcat.com other sponsors include Gelvy balancer the smart reliable and profitable choice for more information go to gelvy.com and find out more just a quick shout out to uh, uh, Luke Jessup who listens regularly out of Kiowa County Oklahoma uh, talking 
talking about last week's show. And if you did not get an opportunity to go and listen to last week's show, don't let the title deceive you. I talk about free fertilizer. Well, we're not just talking about a farm. This isn't just farming we're talking about. We're actually talking about how you can increase production in your pasture ground by some of the tools and or practices that you can implement. And I want to shout out to Luke Jessup for his comments here. He appreciated that. That title kind of caught him off guard. He thought I was going to be talking about farming the entire show and it really wasn't applicable to him, but he found out that there was some good information as we had a couple gentlemen from the University of Missouri, John Laurie and Craig Roberts, joining us to talk about uh, free fertilizer, how we can utilize that and the and the utilization of legumes in our pastures and how that can help with uh, putting uh, some nitrogen back in that soil and increasing our production for our grazing rotation. So be sure to go back and listen to last week's show here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Right now, though, let's check in with the captain, Tim O'Byrne. He is the publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine, and he's here today with this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. Hey, Justin. So, wifey says to me about a month ago, my wrist is really hurting bad. Can you help me out maybe with the kitchen and and, uh, and and maybe take some of the pressure off? And I said, sure, darling, tell me exactly what it is you do around here, and uh, maybe I can pitch in. And boys, listen up real close. It was right at that precise moment that she bogged her head, and she bucked out of the kitchen and into the front room, and I barely made it to the bedroom door before I got her turned back around and circled up there. So I got her calmed down. And I'm doing the dishes now for a week or so. And then uh, I hear from the front room, she's watching Inside Edition or something. And she says, honey, can you, do you have to clang every single dish? I mean, do you have to? And I'm like, well, I was like a big outfit cowboy for 20 years. And that's all the cooks ever did was four o'clock in the morning. They banged pots and pans till you couldn't stand it anymore. I thought that's just naturally what you did. And by the way, I figured out why your wrist is hurting. Every single thing you've got in the kitchen is made out of cast iron. So, I mean, I don't have to go to the gym. So then uh, I got to thinking, you know, She's right about that, about me clanging the, the dishes and everything. Uh, it, and it goes back to BQA. We used to go and do these uh, feed yard and, uh, training sessions. And as soon as you get out of the truck at the pro- processing barn and, and you hear the clanging and the banging and the bellering and the yelling and everything, you know you got a job in, ahead of you to, to get this stuff figured out and, and get these cattle handlers back down to the point where they're not clanging and banging. And that is exactly the same way as me with the dishes. And that's how Christine's bum wrist is hooked up and associated with beef quality insurance. That's my two cents. Back to you, Justin. I know you got a great show. Well, I'll tell you, Captain, I wasn't quite sure where you were headed with that when you were started, and I fully expected at any point in time to hear a clang and a bang, and it was going to be a pot or a pan off of your noggin by your wife, Christine, for involving her in this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents, but you did a great job of turning that around and and, uh, providing a great uh, tie back into BQA, and another reminder for all of us, BQA.org. If you want to look and check out your online, how you can get certified online certifications, you know, there's some incentive there because I believe there's some things you can do with that. When you go to selling your calves this fall, um, 
there's some things you can do with that if you are if your operation is beef quality assurance uh, certified be sure to check that out go to their website at bqa.org well stay with us when we come back we'll head into our featured interview as meteorologist non day joins us for this entire show as we talk all things weather related we'll be back when we return on the working ranch radio show living in the country means working in the country and that calls for a tough tractor Well, Bobcat has 15 models in its compact tractor lineup from 21 to 58 horsepower. With the help of your local Bobcat dealer, you'll find a perfect match for your property and to-do list. Get a look at all the different models at Bobcat.com, and while you're there, use the Build and Quote tool to design your ideal machine. Get yourself one tough tractor from one tough animal. Bobcat. Visit Bobcat.com. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. Justin Mills here with you as we head now into our featured topic for this week's show. And uh, it's always good to have meteorologist Don Day on at the end of the program, as he always does. But for this week's show, we get a whole program with you, Don, and glad to have you here with us. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, normally when you join us, uh, we kind of get a little bit of an update and then kind of a long-term forecast for the couple of weeks. We'll do that at the end of the program here today. But uh, I also wanted to know, as we kind of head into June here, as we are in June, I should say, it's hard to believe that, that uh, we want to get a longer look at what the summer's going to look like and then what we're going to look like as we get into fall, as much as we can gather from the data that we have right now. And of course, the last couple of years, the thing that's really been affecting our weather is La Nina. So let's first start there. And where are we at with the La Nina and the weather pattern and how that's going to affect our weather as we look into the rest of this summer and fall? Well, the last time we did a, a long form weather discussion, we were we were hoping that by mid to late spring, early summer this year, that we can put La Nina to bed. But boy, mm-hmm. has it been feisty <laughs> yeah. and very stubborn. It's uh, And this is, this is a La Nina that's not going to go a full 36 months, but probably 30, 31 months or so to where this La Nina has been hanging on tough. And we do tend to see this around every 10 or 12 years or so where you get a multi-year La Nina. And those La Ninas that go more than one year tend to be the most devastating because it's a drought signal. And when you have long-lived cool sea surface temperatures in the tropical Pacific, that really takes a lot of water vapor away from parts of the Western and central United States and uh, can lead to drought, just like what we're seeing right now. Uh, so here we are uh, heading into late spring, early summer 2022, and we're still technically in that La Nina. Mm-hmm. In fact, the La Nina is stronger now than it was a year ago at this time. Hmm. And with those cold water temperatures hanging around, all indications suggest that at least through the summer, probably early fall, uh, we're going to see some form of a La Nina. Now, it's probably going to be of a weaker state. What will happen a lot of times in the summer with the high sun angle near that equator region where we're watching these water temperatures, that sun does a lot to warm those water temperatures up a bit. So there's a natural erosion of La Nina during the summer months. The trick will be what happens when we get past summer and early fall, will it come back? And Mm -hmm. the latest long range predictions uh, of trying to forecast what the uh, conditions are going to be out there in the central and subtropical Pacific is, is that a slowly weakening La Nina will be taking place this fall 
into early winter and likely into neutral status, hopefully by December or January, and then continuing to decline and then go into a neutral status uh, as we get into the spring of 2023. Now, I'm, I'm I'm pretty confident that's what's going to happen, even though this La Nina has gone on longer than expected. The historical trends, well, we've seen this before. We saw this in 2011 and 2012, and we saw this from 1999 into 2001 and 2002, these long-lasting La Ninas. They do eventually work their way out as we go through the next new solar cycle. Uh, so historically, we have some help coming in terms of what we've seen in the past using the analog technique and the, and the computer modeling is, is in good agreement that by December and January, it's going to weaken to the point where we could probably say a weak La Nina or going into that neutral phase. Mm -hmm. So that's the good news is it's going to eventually go away. The bad news is it's just taking its sweet time. And as we look at what's happened this spring, uh, we talk about these interstates all the time, but certainly along and south of I-70, uh, while there's been some spring rains here recently, there's still a pretty big deficit, and you get along Interstate 40, and boy, conditions have been extremely dry in New Mexico, parts of West Texas, Arizona, Southern California, parts of Utah, Southern Colorado. Those areas I just mentioned are likely going to feel the biggest impacts as we go into the rest of spring and into early summer. Those areas are likely going to be the areas we'll be talking about the most in terms of the current drought. So this year's weather, even though we've been in a La Nina, we've also seen quite a bit of moisture across the northern tier of the country, which... Uh, is, is that that's stemming i think when we talked before from the waters or some of the weather patterns coming off the canadian west coast and, and up into alaska what's causing that versus difference versus what we saw last year though so yeah last year at this time uh the sea surface temperature anomalies is in another area that we keep a close eye on that's the gulf of alaska and those are the also the sea surface temperatures as you get west of British Columbia. What has happened, and this goes back to really April, is, is that we saw those areas cool off. The sea surface temperatures actually drop. Now, this is a little bit hard to keep track of because we talk about cooler waters near the equator being a La Nina and being a drought signal. But when the sea surface temperatures, especially in the spring, when the Gulf of Alaska turn a little bit colder, it becomes a breeding ground for low pressure systems. And that's partly also due to a patch of warm water that's in the North Central Pacific Ocean. So it's kind of a combination, a contrast between warmer water in the Central and Northern Pacific and that Gulf of Alaska, West Coast of British Columbia cold water pool. And that has been one reason why the parts of the Pacific Northwest, the Northern Rockies, and parts of the Northern Plains have had a very stormy spring, whether it's the blizzards in North Dakota and Eastern Montana, whether it's been the recent rain events that have hit parts of Southern Montana, Wyoming, and parts of Idaho and the Pacific Northwest and even Northern California. That's the reason. And those strong storms, Justin, coming off the Gulf of Alaska have been coming in about one a week going back to April and here and all the way into early June. And these really strong storms, while they've been spinning up and becoming deep storms in the northern areas, it's also one reason why we've had these big wind events. Ask anybody about the wind this spring all over a large part of the country, and you'll get a dirty look because everyone has just been 
fed up with the wind. I mean, we've had one high wind event after another from the central and southern plains to the central and southern Rockies. But even parts of the Corn Belt Midwest have had a very windy spring season. And it's due to that very active storm track up north. Now, a year ago, let's rewind. Mm -hmm. A year ago, April, May of last year, it was the reverse. We, we, we had a warmer situation in the Gulf of Alaska, and that led to less storms. And that's one reason why the Pacific Northwest and the Northern Rockies and the Northern Plains, and we really saw this in May and June last year, they started a warmer, drier trend, and it really exacerbated itself in June. And low soil moisture in May leading to a hot, dry June was a real problem. So there are some similarities to where we were a year ago, and there are some differences. But based on that northerly track, that's where the storm track has wanted to be all spring. Mm -hmm. That's where we've seen some drought relief. Not an erase, We haven't erased the drought in some yeah. areas, but we certainly have seen relief in some of those northern areas. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you've pointed out a lot of times when we talk weather is looking back over history, whether it's uh, on a 10, 11-year history, on, on the uh, solar cycles, to even what we talked about, what we've talked about before on 20 to 25-year cycles with, with the waves, the highs and the lows of drought. And it may be a little bit of a reach here, but if you were to look ahead and start to look at what the fall and winter of 2023 is going to look like across the country, do you have any indication what that's going to look like? Or are we too far out to really make that call? No, we're not too far out. I, I think what we're we're likely going to see is a is a fall pattern that's not going to be unlike what we had in the fall of 2021. Um, and we we if you go back and look at the fall of 2021 for many areas, it was fairly unremarkable uh, in terms of uh, the patterns changing from summer to fall. Uh, the sea surface temperature anomalies that will be out there in the subtropical Pacific will be somewhat similar to a year ago. So we can kind of use last fall as a proxy, especially if, when we look at September, October into early November. Now, where I do see things possibly changing a bit and being different is as we get into December and January, um, I do think that uh, when you look at December of 2021, it was for most of the month, three quarters of the month, it was a very warm pattern for most of the lower 48, most of Canada. Uh, you know, November and December was quite warm last year. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to be as warm this time around. I do think that winter will maybe get an earlier start. So the fall will be similar to a year ago but winter probably going to get an earlier start. Also, I do think that as we get into the January, February timeframes with that La Nina weakening, that uh, we'll probably some, see some good old fashioned winter conditions yeah. uh, as we get into the first quarter of 2023, probably more stormy weather that first three months of the year than what we saw last year. Mm -hmm. Don Day, uh, meteorologist, is my guest here today on our program. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk more with him. We still have more time. We're going to do our complete show with him today. And later on in our very last segment, we'll be doing a, a little bit of a forecast for the coming weeks. We're going to continue our conversation. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, what the summer looks like in terms of tropical storms and also maybe have a little conversation about the monsoon season that would be very helpful for the much needed southwestern part of the country that could use some moisture. We're going to talk more about those when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. 
For commercial cow-calf producers, crossbreeding with Galvay and Balancer is the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. Galvay and Balancer females offer maternal superiority through increased fertility, greater longevity, and more pounds of calf weaned per cow exposed. In the feed yard, Balancer cattle can offer increased performance, improve feed efficiency, and have excellent carcass merit. Balancers add the pounds, make the grade, and deliver the value. Gelvy and Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. For more information, go to gelvate.org. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. If you're just joining us here on our program, our guest today is meteorologist Don Day. Joining us, he's out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, and uh, he is our normal weathercaster on our program that gives us kind of our four long-term forecast for folks across the country. We're going a little bit more in-depth today. In the first segment, we were talking about La Nina and how that's going to affect the weather pattern for the next several months and into the winter of 2023. Don, I want to talk now maybe a little bit more in our immediate future Future when we talk about the the summer months and a lot of storm activity across the country and some of it's useful some of it's quite detrimental so let's talk about tropical storms because i know this the southern part of the country and and the east coast they've been hot and dry um, and there's kind of a double-edged sword when it comes to these tropical storms because not only does it bring moisture but it also brings a lot of devastation so what do you look what do you anticipate our tropical storm season to look like for this summer well, one thing uh, that you do tend to see when you look at the tropical season in the southeastern United States, the Gulf Coast, and up through the mid-Atlantic, is that if you are in a La Nina, you do tend to find yourself in a situation where the probability of tropical storm and hurricane activity does increase. Uh, La Ninas tend to cause a, a situation across the southern parts of the United States into the Gulf of Mexico, into the Caribbean, then across the Atlantic there, that makes it a little more favorable for hurricane and tropical storm formation, mainly due to the fact that the winds aloft tend to be a little bit weaker. On the flip side, if you have an El Nino, that is actually a situation where you tend to see less hurricane and tropical storm activity. So just with it being a La Nina season, Again, this summer, we're likely going to have a pretty active tropical storm and hurricane season for the Gulf Coast and the Southeast and the Mid-Atlantic states. Uh, Also, we also pay very close attention to sea surface temperatures in that part of the world as well. And as we look at sea surface temperatures out in the Gulf of Mexico and across a, a good part of the Atlantic, across the Southeastern United States, those sea surface temperatures are elevated. They're also elevated between Africa and uh, the the continent. Uh, and so that, that all adds up to a high probability that there should be a pretty active tropical storm and hurricane season. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did have a pretty active season last year, especially with tropical storms. And if you look at the amount of rain that fell late summer and fall over the Southeast United States, it, it was very significant. It was very, very wet. As you mentioned, those areas have since dried out a little bit. But as we get into the, the season, especially the second half of the season of the tropical storm and hurricane activity, those Gulf Coast and southeastern parts of the United States should kind of be prepared. There's an elevated risk for Mm -hmm. more hurricanes and tropical storms. 
Do you have any indication at this point in time of just where the more targeted area will be? Because it seems like some years you have it, um, you know, it's it may, it's maybe more out of the Gulf or the Florida states or, or Louisiana. But then you also have years where maybe more into North Carolina up on the East Coast gets hit a little bit harder. Is there any way to know where that's going to target? Well, it's really hard to do that. But I will tell you that as warm as the sea surface temperatures are in the Gulf of Mexico, that is one area where that's that's a breeding ground. If you look at the Caribbean, you look at uh, the the conditions around Cuba, then into the Gulf of Mexico, off the Yukon Peninsula of Mexico, with those elevated sea surface temperatures, that is one area where you tend to see an increase in activity early in the season. Later in the season, you start taking a really close look at what's coming off what we call the the African wave train, little areas of low pressure that move westerly from Africa along the trade winds and then blow up into those strong hurricanes that end up affecting the east coast of Florida, the mid-Atlantic states. Um, I think we're going to see a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we'll, we'll, we'll paint with a very broad brush and say that there's there's really no area in particular, I think, that has a higher risk other than all areas have a more elevated risk this year than in previous years. Mm-hmm. While we're on the t- uh, subject of tropical storms, uh, do we see more severity in the storms that we have here in inland, I guess, would say, you know, that are, have tendency to bring tornadic activity, uh, you know, pretty severe thunderstorms. Does that elevate is that elevated as well this this summer? Well, yeah, I mean, that's something that uh, we always are going to take a really close look at. And I do think that's an area that uh, always, you know, any every given summer, every given spring, you're, you're going to have those areas of heavier thunderstorm activity. And one thing that is also a factor, again, I, I keep going back to sea surface temperatures, but they're really, really critical. And when we look at the sea surface temperatures on both coasts of Mexico, uh, the eastern side of Mexico and on the Gulf side, then on the Pacific side, and especially in that Baja region, um, elevated sea surface temperatures do tend to draw up more subtropical moisture out of Central America and Mexico and help draw that moisture northward into the southwest and southern areas of the United States. And if that moisture makes it far enough north and you have the right situation, that could help feed into that heavier thunderstorm activity. Mm-hmm. So while we're talking about some of these, and we and you keep uh, talking about the w- water temperatures, let's talk then monsoon activity because that's sure to get started here. And I know, as as I had mentioned previously, we talked about the southwestern part of the U.S. being particularly dry, the Great Basin, the Four Corners area, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Southern California, and Texas. So this monsoon season, it's going to be starting up here. What's their probability to put some relief on that uh, the dry dryness that they are experiencing right now the monsoon is terribly important uh, for the desert southwest to get summer precipitation this is especially true in arizona parts of southeastern california southern nevada southern utah and we do see the that moisture at times get as far north as as high as far north as interstate 80 across parts of western nebraska and eastern wyoming but it's certainly the desert southwest and parts of the southern plains that feel the effects the most and if it is a weak monsoon season boy it just exacerbates the dryness that many areas have experienced the spring now i'm going to rewind a little bit in the summer of 2020 it was a very poor monsoon season we had cooler 
temperatures with those sea surface conditions off the coast of Baja, uh, the Gulf of Mexico and in the areas just off the coast of Mexico to the east were a little bit cooler. And it was uh, it was the summer. We called it the summer of the no soon monsoon. Uh, (laughs) It just really never got going. And it ended up being a very dry summer in Arizona and New Mexico, parts of West Texas and parts of the central and southern Rockies and Great Basin areas. 2021 was actually a really productive monsoon season. In fact, that's one reason why um, it was not a very active fire season in parts of the Rockies. Uh, Timely summer rains were coming, and that that was keeping the fire activity down while fires raged in California and parts of the Pacific Northwest. So last year's monsoon was good. As we take a look at Heading into the next couple of months here, we're keeping our fingers crossed that we will see the development of this subtropical moisture coming up out of Central America and Mexico into the desert states. And all you need is daytime heating to get those showers and thunderstorms going. You're just looking at subtropical air getting pushed northward. That combined with the mountainous terrain helps lift the atmosphere and create these slow-moving, heavy rain-producing showers and thunderstorms. Usually, it's June as the month of June wears on, the deeper we get into June, into the first couple of weeks of July, that is a critical period. And it's going to be a critical period this summer, especially for Arizona and New Mexico, parts of West Texas, Southern Colorado, Southern Utah, that area that really, really needs the rain. We're hoping that the monsoon comes in. If we can get it as good as we had last year, that would do wonders. Right now, we don't think it's going to be as strong as last year's, but not as bad as 2020. So if there's going to be help for places like Arizona and New Mexico, southern Utah, southern Colorado to get wet as we go into June and July, it's going to be because of that North American monsoon. Mm-hmm. Let's switch directions just a little bit. Uh, Let's talk about the Midwest. This year, they were pretty cold, pretty wet. It was delayed in getting corn planting. But as we look through the summer and into the fall, of course, fall is when the harvest of corn would be taking place and much needed. But what do you anticipate for the Midwest, which is a pretty vital part of American agriculture? Yeah, one thing about the Midwest and the Corn Belt that they always have going for them every year is the good old Gulf of Mexico. Because during the course of the summer season, that higher humidity air just naturally works its way northward off the Gulf Coast into the Corn Belt Midwest and helps bring that warm, high humidity air that makes everything grow. It also helps feed the showers and thunderstorms that will uh, develop. And uh, as you get further east, the further east you get into the Corn Belt, the less and less La Nina is impactful. Uh, If you were to sort of draw a dividing line between where La Nina has a big impact and where it really decreases, it's going to be right along eastern Nebraska, uh, eastern far eastern Kansas and points west from there. Mm -hmm. Uh, West of that line, that's where La Nina really has a big influence. East of that line, it's all about the Gulf of Mexico. It's kind of the Missouri River is kind of our break there then. Right, exactly. And you get east of that Missouri River area, you get into that higher uh, air that's with higher water content, you're going to just naturally have better opportunities for rain. That's why you don't see center pivots across the corn belt in those areas there you know they average well over 30 30 to 40 inches of rain a year uh now certainly that part of the world is susceptible to drought the last time they really had a hard one was in 2012 which was coming out of uh, a situation where there was 
uh, the long-lasting uh, La Nina. We don't think that's going to happen this year. We do see a situation developing to where near normal amounts of precipitation, I think, are coming to the Corn Belt in the Midwest, and I think seasonal temperatures as well. So everything that I see coming right now is indicating a fairly good weather pattern coming our way for the Midwest and Corn Belt. Now, they are off to a bit of a slow start. Mm -hmm. It's been cool and wet in some areas. Planting's been a bit behind. They've been able to catch up. Uh, so things might be a little bit behind in terms of growth rates and where crop is along in terms of the calendar, but nothing that would indicate a severe drought uh, coming to the Midwest and Corn Belt this summer. Okay. Meteorologist Don Day is our guest here today on the program. We've got one more big segment uh, before we get into our long-term forecast. And when we come back, we're going to answer this question. Is this really the worst drought that we've ever experienced? Well, Don has a lot to say about that. We're going to talk with him when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Starting off in the right direction is essential to gaining an advantage later when you go to market your calves. And I have proof that the right direction is with Sim Angus Sired Calves. A 2020 study by K-State showed that Sim Angus Sired Steer Calves earn more at sale time than all other breed identified sire groups with at least 50 lots represented on Superior Livestock's 2020 summer sales. The proof's right there. For low-risk, high-potential calves with earning potential, be confident that Sim Genetics will give you more per head, period. Stand strong, Simmental. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. Our guest today is meteorologist Don Day as we get a little bit of a in more in-depth look at our weather across the country. We've had a lot of great discussion up so far. Don, I want to go to uh, this next subject. I led up to it in the last segment. Is this wor- really the worst drought? And for folks in the northern part of the country uh, that's had some moisture, uh, we've, we've kind of got out of the drought situation as much as so far compared to last year. Folks in the southeast or southwestern, excuse me, southern part of the uh, the country, uh, seeing those dry conditions. And every time we go through these deals, everybody says, boy, this is the worst drought in who knows when. So I want you to expand a little bit on that because you say there's media out there kind of playing into this. And I know then we start to get into the whole topic of, well, what are we doing this to our climate that's causing this? And so there's just a lot of stuff kind of being uh, conjuring up in this. And in a way, not to use a, a weather acronym, but kind of a storm's brewing a little bit here on, on some of this. So if I were to ask you the question, is this really the worst drought? What would you say? Well, there's one paper that came out and this came out last year. They did a tree ring study and it was it was a paper that was published in, in Nature. They, they have a sub uh, publication offshoot called Nature Climate Change. And what they did is they went back And they did a lot of tree ring studies from archaeological sites in the desert southwest. So we're talking about archaeological sites in New Mexico and Arizona and southern Utah and southwestern Colorado. And from those tree ring studies, you can go back and you can you can look at the tree rings and see whether it was a wet year or was a dry year. And they found some very old roof beams and old trees where they were able to do this. Now, I will say that using tree rings is what we call proxies, which is be able to get some basic idea of what the weather was like historically when these trees lived Mm -hmm. is a fairly good way to get get a good representation of what the climate was like 
when those trees are alive, when they think the trees live due to carbon dating and everything else. And so this paper came out um, last year that talked about that for the last 19 year period actually ended in 2018. So they did what I call is cherry picking where they, they kind of picked the years where they could find it the driest. And they basically said, well, based on the tree rings that they looked at in the desert Southwest, the current period we're in right now is drier than any other period they saw in the tree rings all the way back to 800 AD. Um, now, in itself and using tree rings and everything else as proxies is fine. In fact, you know, there's a lot of science to back up that it gives you a basic idea that that's what the weather and the climate like was at times. But a lot of folks, unfortunately, and, and the media is really guilty of this, mm-hmm. is they took that paper and they applied it to the entire Western United States when actually it was the desert Southwest where the study was done. Also, you can't, you cannot make precise measurements of rainfall with tree rings. You can have a good idea, but we really only have about 120 years, really a hundred years of good rainfall data for the desert Southwest and a lot of parts of the Western United States. So it makes a really good headline that this is the worst drought since mm-hmm. 800 AD, which also translates into 12, 12 centuries. I, I call this climate clickbait, yeah. which is, Wow, this is a very big, bold statement um, that we're, we're in the worst drought in centuries. However, if you go back and look at rainfall data using rain gauges in the Western United States, you find that 1976 and 1977 is a lot drier, was a lot drier than what we're experiencing now, as well as other periods in the 30s and as well as other periods in the 1920s. But unfortunately, this this story has gotten legs. Mm -hmm. So wherever there's been drought over the last couple of years, whether it's Montana, whether it's Oregon or Idaho or Wyoming or South Dakota, everyone's been lumped into this this uh, mantra that this is the worst in the last 12 centuries. I will say this for the Four Corners region where they 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 found these tree rings and did this study, certainly possibly could it be? I can't disprove it. It's really hard to prove it as mm-hmm. well, but it's being used as a broad brush for the rest of the nation when that really isn't true. Mm-hmm. And the weather data now, as you as you pointed out, uh, we really don't have measurable, really good data until about the turn of the century. What nineteen twenties? Is that correct? Is when that or nineteen ten or when was that really where we we have good data? Well, yeah, and even then. Um, the thing is, is people need to realize the, the weather records that we have of accurately measuring temperature and precipitation with high quality uh, measuring devices that have been done correctly, like the correct, pro- the correct placement of a thermometer, the correct placement of a rain gauge is really something that honestly, in the last 60 or 70 years, we've got good data from then. You look back at how the West was settled and the large distances between points, you may only have one or two data points over a whole state for three decades. Mm -hmm. So that's why they go back and use tree rings and everything else to try to get some basic idea of what the weather and climate was over a period of time. But the, the, the length of record of using high quality instruments to, to measure what has actually happened with the weather is, is a modern situation 
We cannot go back to the 1700s or the 1600s or the 1500s and pull up weather records. They just don't exist. Mm -hmm. They don't exist anywhere in North America. Uh, And if you look across the nation, as you would expect, the best weather records are along the East Coast where the people were there the first. And they get older as you go east and younger as you go west. So you have to be somewhat discerning when you hear bold statements such as, this is the coldest, this is the wettest, this is the hottest it's ever been or over hundreds of years. Because honestly, we don't have rigorous databases to prove that. We can only make approximate approximate guesses using proxies like tree rings and ice cores and that type of thing. But if you're going to start saying that we're a tenth or two tenths of degrees warmer or colder than we were a thousand years ago. We just don't have that resolution with things like tree rings to be able to get that precise. Mm -hmm. In regards to our data now, uh, you referenced the years of 1976 and 1977 as being the worst that we have on modern records, weather records that we have. That, in addition, since the early 1900s, when there's been some fairly accurate weather being kept, we're actually seeing maybe a slight increase in precipitation from then till now. Is that correct? Well, yeah. If you take a look at some of the western states, if you were to do a linear trend of precipitation from start to end, there's actually been a slight increase of precipitation over that 100 years. But again, you have to be careful with that because the lead author admits this as well as what you see in the graph is you see extreme variability. And that's something that the the Western United States has variability. You have two or three really wet years. You have four or five really dry years. It zigzags and goes back and forth where you just don't have that consistent precipitation pattern year in and year out that other parts of the country, frankly, do. We talked about the Corn Belt Mm -hmm. and east of the Missouri River there, that Gulf of Mexico influence. And then there's the Atlantic influence. And you tend to see year in and year out less fluctuations in dry and wet periods. But you get into the West and a really different ballgame with high variability. So while the upward trend in precipitation last 100 years is about seven tenths of an inch or so, um, that doesn't really tell the whole story. If you were to graph every year, you would see it go back and forth, dry year, wet year, dry year, wet year. Trying to find the middle ground is really, really difficult. And that's why folks who settled the West, that's why it's called the Oregon Trail. Yeah, yeah, they kept going. They they kept going west of the Cascades where they know the precipitation was going to be consistent. Yeah, well, that's funny you say that about the zig and the zag and the weather because our average precip here in northeastern Wyoming is 15 inches for us here, 14.99, so we'll just say 15 inches. I have yet to see an average year it's either we're 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 drastically low or we're drastically high and i would just love to have a just a regular average year right and 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 if you did you can count on it but uh due to where the north america sits in the mid latitudes if you were to look anywhere across the world in the mid latitudes and we talk the mid latitudes we're talking around most of the united states is between about 35 and 45 degrees latitude, roughly, you know, somewhere through the, we're, we're halfway between the, the North pole. We're halfway between the equator. We're mm-hmm. in between. So basically you're, you're looking at air masses battling throughout the year and you get this high variability back and forth. Um, and if you don't have influences like the Gulf of Mexico or the, or the warm 
Gulf Stream that goes up the east coast of the United States, which which moderates climate and brings higher humidity air into the region, you're going to have more variability. So a lot of times I always I remind people, I said, you know, first of all, you got to look at where you are in the United States and realize sometimes how far you are away from a water source. There are parts of the United States where we farm and ranch that's very far mm-hmm. from an ocean, a mm-hmm. water source. And so you have to look at that. And then you also have to say, look at the terrain. Look at these mountains. Look at these long, tall mountains that catch moisture, cause wind variations, and cause a lot of things to go on. It's a kind of a jumbled mess, really, when you when you try to put it all together. And so that's why there are certain parts of the country where there are you're just more susceptible to drought than other parts of the United States. Mm-hmm, you bet. Our guest today is meteorologist Don Day. And when we come back, we're going to join back up with him for our regular segment that we have in each and every episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show, and that is our long-term weather. Now, keep in mind, today we've been talking really long, long-term. We're going to back it up just a little bit and do our regular segment with him as we get a look for the next couple of weeks of what the weather uh, will look like for folks across the country here when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Whoa, Herefords are the efficiency experts for a reason. In crossbreeding systems, Herefords boost pregnancy rates by 7% and add $30 per head in feed yard profitability. And Hereford genetics bring unrivaled hybrid vigor, longevity, and disposition. Now that'll stop you in your tracks. Come home to Hereford for more pounds, more calves, and more profit. Visit Hereford.org for a sale near you. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. As we head into our regular segment that we have every week with meteorologist Don Day and a look at our long-term forecast. If you're just joining us here on the program, he has been our guest here for this week's show as we get a little bit more in-depth look at our weather. Don, let's get now into what we normally talk about each and every week, and that's looking out for the next couple of weeks of weather. We kind of briefed a little bit about it in our uh, first segment with you as we were talking about the La Nina weather pattern and it's how it's it's going to affect the weather across the country. Let's look now here as we start June and we're just a few weeks away from the start of summer of what we anticipate, what you're anticipating to see for weather across the country. Well, as, as we go through uh, the next few weeks, a couple of things stick out from what we're seeing. I, I still see more precipitation chances for the northern tier. Just like what we said at the beginning of the program is, is that that's the area that's been the most active and the most wet. And as we go through the first 10, 15 days of, of June, that's where I think the best precipitation is going to be. And that would, in, that would include uh, the Pacific Northwest through the Northern Plains into the Northern Northwest areas of the Corn Belt. So those areas, I, I see precipitation chances being pretty good. Conversely, it's those Southern areas again, that I-70 corridor and point South into the I-40 corridor are gonna see less in the way of precipitation those northern areas also uh june is not going to be off to a rip-roaring warm start Mm -hmm. Uh, we're likely going to see temperatures for the first 10 to 15 days of june being a bit below average uh, especially the central the northern and the northwestern areas of the u.s so that's one thing uh, that is a little bit different than last year if you remember the june of 2021 
it was a hot, dry month for a lot of the United States. At least for the first couple of weeks of June, we don't see that. So if we were to compare June of this year to June of last year, it is going to be a little bit cooler. The exception is going to be the desert southwest, central and southern California, uh, those areas being a little bit on the warm side of things. And as we talked earlier also about that North American monsoon getting started, especially after the 10th of June, let's say, Mm -hmm. Uh, once we get past the 10th of June to the 20th to the 30th of June, that's where I see help for the southern and southwestern areas of the United States. Mm -hmm. Also notice that the East Coast has been pretty hot, too. Uh, Maybe above, when you look at the map, maybe above normal from what they would normally be at. Are they gonna? Are they on the same pattern? In the fact that when we start to see this ease out a bit here in the West, uh, the cooling temperatures out in the West ease out a little bit and get more to normal. Are they gonna get a little bit cooler? Or are they still gonna stay pretty hot on the East Coast? Well, one one rule of thumb: if it's cool in the West, it's gonna be warm in the East. Okay. So as the northern and northwestern areas in the United States are a little bit cooler than normal through the first half of June, what we're likely going to see is it being pretty warm, basically from the Corn Belt and points east. Uh, this will be especially true of the Great Lakes, uh, the northeastern parts of the United States. Those areas, I think, are gonna have above normal temperatures in June. Uh, And what tends to happen is once you get past the middle of June, as you get into the summer season, you start to see that jet stream retreat to the north. Temperatures then be kind of even out a little bit where you don't have as much contrast uh, in terms of 30 year averages to where temperatures tend to trend a little bit closer to average. Mm -hmm. But the first half of June, I do think you're going to see some contrast between west and east, not only with precipitation, but uh, temperatures as well. All right. Well, Don, I, I sure thank you for joining us, uh, spending the whole program with us, giving us an idea on what we're going to see for the La Nina weather and across the across the country here for the rest of the year and some of the other information. So I appreciate you joining us here on our program for this week's show. Thanks for having me. And again, our guest today, meteorologist Don Day joining us. He is out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, but he's also a regular contributor to our program here on the Working Ranch Radio Show as each and every week he does provide us with a bit of a long-term weather outlook uh, for the country. And and if you're not familiar, you can find his daily video podcast. Now you can go through it, find it by going through his his website at dayweather.com, but it's actually a YouTube channel. So if you're on YouTube and you just search Don Day Weather, you can find that you can subscribe to that as it kicks out every Monday through Friday morning now the nice thing about that is it's a video so it com- it's complete with charts and graphs and the information that he's looking at there and I think it's uh, it's very relevant information to it I know uh, for a lot of folks you're maybe not based out of the Rocky Mountain region and into the Midwest area where a lot of the the weather that uh, he kind of focuses on probably is a little bit more that way but nevertheless he does look at the nation as a whole and I think you'd find it weather uh, forecast very very useful again his website is dayweather.com but he also has a youtube channel as well well stay with us when we come back we'll wrap up this episode of the working ranch radio show when we return after this 
Do you have a young child, grandchild, niece, or nephew that loves the weather and wants to learn more? Dayweather has produced a children's weather journal full of weather facts, fun weather experiments, coloring pages, and pages to record weather observations for every season of the year. The weather journal is for ages 3 to 7 and designed to be fun and educational. The interactive weather projects are fun for the whole family to take part in. For only $10, the Dayweather Weather Journal is a great gift idea for any occasion. Click on our Amazon link to order at dayweather.com. Ranching has been in the Hardgrove family for generations, and they know the value of keeping a ranch in the family. Hardgrove Ranch Insurance provides pasture, range, and forage insurance to ranchers across the nation. PRF Insurance is a USDA-subsidized program that allows ranchers to insure against the risk of below-average rainfall. Hardgrove Ranch Insurance utilizes industry-leading custom software to provide the rancher with information they need to stay up-to-date and educated on their policy throughout the year. Hargrove Ranch Insurance supports ranchers for this generation, the next, and those yet to come. Contact Hargrove Ranch Insurance at 325-573-8975 for a free custom quote or online at hargroveinsurance.com. Well, before we close things down here for this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show, I want to remind you, I mentioned it earlier in the program about last week's show that we had, but uh, in doing that, I I, I want to overall encompass the fact that if you did miss a show and you want to go back and listen to that, one of the best ways to do that is go to workingranchradio.com and you can find all of the list of shows that we've had. Just to highlight a few that we've had here for the last uh, week, of course, I mentioned earlier in the program last week we were talking about free fertilizer did someone say free fertilizer that was a that was the catchy title on that one as john laurie and craig roberts out of the university of missouri joining us on that one uh previously to that we had uh, some folks with the u.s roundtable for sustainable beef as we were talking about sustainability and what that means to us as beef producers a great dialogue roundtable discussion with those folks and then farming without the bank is that an oxymoron well if you want to find out what that means go to episode six as I visited uh, with Mary Jo Ehrman, who wrote the book Farming Without the Bank and also talks about that concept, but a lot of other things that are I thought were real relevant to the financial side of our ranching operations. So a lot of good topics you can go back and listen to here and invite you to go ahead and do that as well. A thank you to our sponsors of the Working Ranch Radio Show this week, Bobcat, One Tough Tractor. Visit bobcat.com and you can use the build and quote tool to design your ideal machine. Gelby Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. For more information, go to gelvy.org. Well, the Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine, branded number one by America's ranchers. The latest issue is out. If it's not on your kitchen table just yet or has arrived yet into your mailbox, be looking. It's well worth the wait. Take a look at this latest edition of Working Ranch Magazine. By the way, if you do not have your subscription, go to Working Ranch mag.com and you can get your subscription started today be sure to join us next week at this same time and same place or on your favorite podcast provider i'm your host justin mills and until next time keep your chin down and your mind in the middle so long